Now I'm very pleased to hand you over to our moderator for this evening, Quentin Dempster. Quentin's a journalist, author and broadcaster with extensive experience in television and print media. He's no stranger to whistleblowing. Uh, he's the author of Whistleblowers, an account of a range of cases of whistleblowing in Australia. In 1995, he headed a national investigative unit for, for, the, AB, for the 7.30 report on the ABC and covered the Wood Royal Commission into Police Corruption in New South Wales. Uh, currently, he presents 7.30 New South Wales. He's a frequent contributor to the ABC blog, The Drum, and he's chair of the Walkley Advisory Board. Thanks very much, Quentin. Over to you. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Would you please welcome our courageous uh, whistleblower, uh, Thomas Drake. Tom, would you come up, please? Uh, Tom, as Chris said, is a former senior executive and technical director for software engineering at the National Security Agency, where he blew the whistle on massive multi-billion dollar fraud, waste and abuse, the failure of 9-11, as well as the widespread violations of the rights of citizens through secret mass surveillance programs after 9-11. And uh, Jesslyn Radak is a lawyer for both Edward Snowden and Thomas Drake, she was previously an ethics advisor to the US Department of Justice, where she became a whistleblower after discovering that the FBI had violated ethical standards and then the Department of Justice had tried to cover it up. She is the Director of National Security and Human Rights at the Government Accountability Project, the most prominent whistleblowing support NGO in the United States. Welcome to you uh, both. Uh, Tom. I just want to explain the ordeal that uh, Tom has been through personally. Uh, he was one of uh, a number of NSA employees, uh, William Binney, Kirk Wiebe and Edward Loomis, long-time NSA employees who a few years earlier than Edward Snowden attempted to raise concerns with their superiors only to find themselves rebuffed. I'm reading from the New York Review of Books. Um, uh, when they learned that the agency was indiscriminately monitoring the communications of American citizens without warrant, Binny, Wiebe and Loomis resigned and later found themselves the subject of FBI interrogations. Tom Drake, however, stayed on and brought his suspicions to the Office of General Counsel for the NSA where he was told, don't ask any more questions, Mr Drake. Frustrated, Tom Drake eventually leaked what he knew to a reporter for the Baltimore Sun, the, uh, the upshot a home invasion by the FBI, a federal indictment and the threat of 35 years in prison for being in possession of classified documents that, when he obtained them, had not then been classified. After years of harassment by the government and Drake's financial ruin, the case was dropped the night before the trial. Tom, you didn't give any classified information to the journalists, did you? Did not. And um, I did give the journalists information in the public interest. Uh, so you, you t what did you tell the journalist and that was published in the Baltimore Sun? Well, after making anonymous contact with her via encrypted means, knowing that NSA had a wide drift net and a mass surveillance program that also targeted uh, lots and lots of journalists and reporters, truth be told, um, I set some ground rules with her. And the ground rules included not providing her any classified information and that I would not be a single source of any information I gave her. How did the case against you fall over? Why did they withdraw? I think it was the weight of truth that collapsed the case. Um, in the end, the government was unable to convince the judge uh, in the pretrial criminal proceedings that the charges against me in terms of the documents they had 
uh, would actually uh, hold up uh, in a uh, trial before a jury of my peers. And, um, but, and but in it was, it's also fair, it's critical to say, it wasn't just what was going on inside the courtroom. Um, in the end, the media was my saving grace. Because it was national coverage. It became national coverage. Uh, it was certainly national coverage when I was charged uh, un so unceremoniously by the Department of Justice. They were issuing all kinds of uh, you know, public affairs statements. Um, they had briefings uh, at the very senior level, up to and including the head of the criminal division. You had a number of others, including the FBI, weighing in about how bad I really was and that I had caused exceptionally grave damage to the national security of the United States, uh, which was patently untrue. And you were demonized. Uh, uh, very in, much so. Traitor, turncoat, enemy of the state. Um, I was really, really... Disgruntled employee. The well, that was part of the, you know, the always, you know, shoot the messenger, find ways to attack them personally. Mm. Uh, caricaturize them in ways that uh, take away what the message of the whistleblowing actually consisted of. So you focus on the person, you know, not, not uh, what they actually said or what they disclosed. Um, you never intended... Uh, to you wanted to uh, go through upward referral in the NSA first. You raised with your superiors all your concerns, and including, as I read out, uh, your, your, your evidence of fraud. Right. There was three areas in which I blew the whistle, and this was all right after 9-11. And the, the, the one in which I was staring deep into the abyss of, of a Pandora's box where the United States government at the highest levels, up to and including the White House, said, you know what, Constitution's in the way, we'll unchain ourselves from that Constitution. And they secretly approved a mass domestic surveillance program, uh, still not fully revealed to this day, in spite of all the Snowden disclosures, how far the government has gone. I was early eyewitness to, all that, to that program. Yeah. And I confronted uh, my boss, I, I went to the Office of Inspector General, I eventually became a material witness in several official investigations, including two 9-11 investigations. Um, there was also multi-billion dollar fraud. Uh, a lot of people, it's one of the big elephants in the room, 9-11 uh, happens, and so because you know, NSA was too big to fail, but they certainly weren't uh, too big to engage in very large contract vehicles, and Congress is literally writing blank checks. Mm. Uh, as a response to the failure, and so billions and billions of additional dollars are being poured into NSA, and they double down on a flagship program called Trailblazer, um, which was already a multi-billion dollar boondoggle. And um, all that money was spent over a number of years and all wasted. Mm. And then the other uh, area that I blew the whistle on, um, and this is the area that I spent a lot of time with the congressional investigators, because they were looking at, could, why did 9-11 happen? Was there anything within the system? Was there anything within the data that we knew that could have stopped it? And NSA chose to cover up what they knew. And I discovered critical intelligence, critical reports, actionable intelligence, uh, that if it had been shared within proper channels, up to and including the President of the United States, it's very possible that 9-11 would have, would have been stopped by virtue of what NSA alone knew, although it was a systemic failure across government. Yeah. Uh, Jessalyn, how did you uh, become the legal representative of Edward Snowden and did Edward Snowden learn anything from Tom's experience because he was a contractor for Booz Allen Hamilton, a contractor to the NSA with high security clearance? By the time Edward Snowden made his disclosures, I had represented a number of employees who have unfortunately been um, investigated 
indicted or and or prosecuted by the Obama administration under the Espionage Act, which is a law meant to go after spies, not whistleblowers. So I had a reputation publicly, um, which is how Snowden knew about me. But Snowden had also followed Tom Drake's case very closely and that of another client of mine named William Binney, about whom documentarian Laura Poitras, one of the journalists who broke Snowden's disclosures, she had done an op-doc on um, an op-ed documentary on Bill Binney. And she had also followed the case, uh, I mean, he had also followed the case of Chelsea Manning. So he took those as object lessons of what perils to avoid. You didn't advise him before he exposed himself with uh, Greenwald and Laura. No. Um, you came on after, yes. after the exposures in the, in the Guardian. Um, why did he decide to, uh, to go public and identify himself as the source? Most whistleblowers blow the whistle anonymously so that people will focus on the message and not the messenger. But I think it, he knew it was a matter of time before he was going to be revealed um, by the government and they would paint a caricature of him. So he revealed himself in a way that he had control and predicted exactly what the government would in fact say about him, that he was a traitor and intended to um, hurt US citizens and help our enemies and paint him in the worst light possible. But the key to it was that uh, he was smart and he was aware of all that and uh, with the, the Guardian and the other media which uh, took it up and some, we'll get to the failings of journalism later in the conversation, but uh, you're all agreeably surprised that uh, it got such a, a prominent uh, consciousness, consciousness raising run all around the uh, all around the world. It really did, um, and in a way that the demonising didn't work. <laughs> right, the demonising didn't work. Um, part of that was because he helped frame the issue, and he had two very sophisticated journalists helping him frame the issue. Um, but also, he had documentary evidence, which is something that a lot of the other whistleblowers who revealed similar conduct. For example, Tom revealing similar things in their embryonic stages. He had the documentation to back that up, so that also gained um, gained more insight into him, um, as well as the fact that he is tech savvy in ways that appeal to a very large swath of younger generation people. <clears throat> exactly. Uh, let's go look at the bureaucracy of what is now known as warrantless eavesdropping and uh, ubiquitous uh, surveillance that uh, all these brave souls have, uh, have raised. Uh, take us through um, the, uh, the five eyes as they're known. We're, Australia is part of the five mm -hmm. eyes. Uh, we're, we're obviously very trusted. But um, uh, the five eyes and the other uh, associated uh, na nations that, uh, that share information uh, and surveillance with uh, the NSA? Well, the relationship between NSA and Canada, you know, the United Kingdom, uh, New Zealand, Australia, goes back many, many decades. And all post-war, isn't it? Post-World War II, um, an extraordinary relationship, a very secret relationship. Um, it certainly has stood the test of time and has seen many, um, you know, prime ministers and presidents come and go. Um, but the Five Eyes endures, and it was a very uh, large um, 
network of technologies and infrastructure that was designed to deal with the Cold War period. Uh, it was world girdling. Um, it because of the advances in modern technology and communications, um, it was able to surveil what much of, of the world's communication even before the rise of the digital age. After 9-11, um, that relationship was expanded. In fact, I would argue that it became even closer. And one of the mechanisms that they had put into place uh, um, in years past was called Echelon, and they took full advantage of all that they had in place uh, to deal with the new threat. And because of the fact that much of the world's communication, um, it's particularly the digital age, was coming to the United States uh, and or uh, involved the ability to pace on locate the locations. Uh, if you look at all the main trunk lines, uh, even what was traditional communications, the old undersea uh, cables, um, where fiber optic was being laid, much of this transit or cross or was near or came through the Five Eyes uh, nations. Uh, so it, it was greatly expanded in terms of the access to that ty those types of, of data flows and those kind of uh, communication channels. And that but that involved the, the, what was the traditional signals intelligence components of those respective nations. But there's also a very large number of other third, what they call, th NSA refers to as third party countries, uh, including Germany, for example, in which these types of relationships were made um, not quite as close, but very similar relationships, depending on the country involved, uh, with their respective security services as well. Well, in a in a in a counterterrorism argument, uh, in a counterterrorism context, you could understand this closer cooperation. But uh, what we're looking at here is warrantless, what's called warrantless uh, eavesdropping. Mm -hmm. um, how is this? How is this legal? Well, that's a problem. <laughs> um, a lot the courts it's that not. have actually opined on this say that it is not legal and likely unconstitutional because at least in the US we have the Fourth Amendment that prohibits search and seizure unless you have probable cause to believe that a crime is committed. And part of the problem with the mass dragnet surveillance is that you have an intelligence apparatus spying on hundreds of millions of completely innocent people with no probable cause or even a reasonable suspicion that they've engaged in any wrongdoing whatsoever. But we're, we're now in a world of uh, the internet and uh, instantaneous email globally through internet service providers. Um, uh, and it would be understandable that uh, uh, intelligence agencies would want to collect as much data as possible to look at the traffic. Well, to the extent that um, information is a currency of power, you could make that argument, but to the extent that your mission is to catch terrorists, that proves not to be true, including by the own White House's internal review panel, which found that all of this mass dragnet surveillance uh, did nothing to thwart any terrorist plots. So um, the, the desire to scoop up all this information and gather it has more to do with power and population control than it does with fighting terrorism. I can tell you that the mantra was simply, we need the data. And if we can get it, we'll And get I it. think in the fear and paranoia that came out of 9-11, it is understandable, because it was a failure, that the response was, you know, we just need access to more information. What that turned into, because NSA, as well as the other, the other, the rest of the Five Eyes, 
were all designed and, and optimized to collect information. That this was the internet, wow, you know, we get to pipeline this on an extraordinarily vast scale, let's just do it. And so increasingly the orientation was, the mindset, the worldview was, let's just go to wherever we need to go to find the data we need that we don't know about. Um, Snowden, in a, in a um, interview, has said that uh, the NSA and its various other uh, associates can uh, surveil you as you are on your computer, actually composing your, your uh, emails. Uh, is that true? What is, Tom, what is uh, X-Keyscore? Well, X-Keyscore is, is a system I was actually familiar with before even 9-11. Um, and it was greatly expanded after 9-11. Uh, XE score really gives you a read on uh, precisely what uh, keeps track in essence. It's a way in which you can profile um, those that you, the, the data that you're actually uh, collecting. And so it can build, build this over time. Uh, what, it, what, what it actually gives you a measure in fact of, of how much you're actually collecting and what you're collecting. Um, you can you can call it sort of a it's sort of like a um, um, a dashboard, as it were, okay, of of the internet channels and the internet internet communications uh, around the world. Snowden said, "I, sitting at my desk, could wiretap anyone from you or your accountant to a federal judge or even the president if I had a personal email." U.S. officials vehemently denied that this was true. Uh, a, an official said, accused Snowden of lying, adding it's impossible for him to do what he was saying he could do. But X-Keyscore permits an analyst to do exactly what Snowden said. Yes, and I mean this is, you say kind of the great paradox of secret power when you have access to this kind of information, the temptation is to simply, you know, not only collect it all, but you at any time, uh, you can go into that data and say, hey, what can we know, what can we find out? Having said that, are there clearly legitimate purposes to find real threats? Yes, but geez, you don't have to wiretap the entire world on a warrantless basis to find the real threats. In fact, if anything, you obscure them. Jessalyn, uh, the great internet uh, companies, uh, Gmail, Apple, Skype, YouTube, Facebook, Yahoo, uh, Microsoft, uh, were cooperative with the NSA. They were. In fact, they were double dealing in so far as they were charging their user a fee to provide services and at the same time were charging the NSA to sell user data um, to the intelligence Didn't they have agency. privacy policies? Um, I think their privacy policies have been strengthened by an order of magnitude since Snowden's <laughs> disclosures. They had um, illusory privacy settings sometimes but that didn't really matter because they had given a front door to NSA and then when they, for the things NSA didn't have a front door to, it created its own back doors. President Obama has said, uh, don't worry, we're not listening to your, uh, we're not listening to your conversations, uh, this is metadata uh, and metadata is uh, uh, only a monitoring of, uh, of traffic and so uh, don't be too... Uh, frightened about it. Uh, isn't that the case? It's, it's metadata. What, well, can, why, it's, what can metadata do to expose you? Especially when you collect uh, metadata on people, which is, if it's like email, it's who you're sending it to, who you're receiving email from, time and date. Uh, if it's phone calls, it's duration, location information. Extremely rich information about uh, your digital life. And in fact, I've said that metadata is really an index to your digital life. 
as you persist that information, the collection of that information, that metadata over time, you're going to learn an awful lot about an individual. You're going to learn an awful lot about their habits. You're going to learn an awful lot about who they're communicating with. You're going to learn an awful lot about their travels. This is the richness of, the modern, of our modern uh, society. And so the amount of information that we can discover, even at sort of at the high level, without ever even going into the actual uh, content of a conversation or the content email, is, is extraordinarily rich. Um, the U.S. government, uh, in secret, uh, decided that if this information resided with a business, it was a business record, that essentially meant it was carte blanche, that they could actually get access to it. Uh, through, through means that were essentially warrantless, or the equivalent of a general warrant, um, simply because they could. Um, but there's one other thing, they kept saying we don't listen in. It's, it's actually, that's actually a lie, because increasingly in the digital age, the metadata is the index of the content. It's extraordinarily tempting when you have access to information of this type, especially when it's broad-based. Well, why don't you just dip into the content as well? Because if you decide you don't like somebody, you decide you want to monitor somebody, or a whole range of people, it's all there to do so, including the ability to mass translate uh, phone calls. And there'd be no supervisor over, the, over your shoulder saying, no, don't do that. Well, the, the, culture, the culture would be the culture, if you can get away with it. The culture is everything essentially is suspicious. And so when you're addicted to this much data, you're going to take a look at it. Whether you do it by uh, eyeball, whether you do it through ear, uh, ear sets, you know, your headphones, or whether you let machine uh, algorithms uh, go through it. Now, uh, Jesslyn, there's, uh, because of this rich data, uh, the United States or the National Security Agency has uh, constructed a huge uh, uh, capacity facility in Utah, I think. Tell us about that. That's correct. They're in the process of constructing a Utah data storage facility that is approximately the size of three football fields. And you can store probably my entire lifetime of data on something the size of my fingernail. Um, right now, the storage facility is estimated to be able to contain 100 years worth of the world's information, um, so I, which seems funny, perhaps, but query, what is the purpose of doing this? I, I mean, normally, we, we operate in democracies on a presumption of innocent until proven guilty. We don't store a bunch of data that we can later trawl through if we think someone might have done something wrong. As Tom and Quentin were talking about, your metadata tells everything about you. It doesn't matter. Most content is garbage in, garbage out. But with metadata, if I call an abortion clinic, or I call a suicide prevention hotline, or I call Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll have a pretty good idea why I might be making those calls. Um, so storing that data on people is a huge invasion of privacy that will outlive you, pretty much everyone in this room. The other problem is the, the classic, uh, I call up the, uh, the local uh, pizza shop uh, for delivery. That means if there is a bad guy that's also uh, called in for pizza that night, um, that means anybody and everybody that's uh, been, you call that same number, it becomes suspicious. And this is sort of the philosophy here. 
is that if that number is called, that means there's something, something else that we need to know about. That means every other number that's called that gets swept up. Tom, uh, as part of the five eyes, uh, uh, the NSA would be surveilling the Australian population? Not necessarily, given the gentlemen's agreements that exist between the five eyes. Although there is, they, they do not have, they, it is true, it was actually recently acknowledged publicly. Um, I knew this for many, many years. There was a gentleman's agreement that we don't spy on each other. However, having said that, you it's very convenient <laughs> that, you know, obviously, uh, if, if I'm the United States and I'm looking at Australia, well, an Australian is a foreign citizen with respect to the United States. And if I have these secret agreements, uh, sharing arrangements and agreements uh, with the Security Service Australia, guess what? That's the manner in which, or on behalf of, hey, I want to you know, spy on somebody in one of our countries, it's just convenient to look to my friend uh, to do so on my behalf without, quote-unquote, violating my country's restrictions to do so. Right. Any domestic surveillance will be done by our domestic uh, agencies. We've got an issue here with uh, Australian so-called jihadists uh, wanting to go to the, the Middle East and, uh, and be involved. Uh, passports have been cancelled and various other... There's, there's, there'd be full-on surveillance of the, the, the traffic of both targeted and more general. You'd I would expect by, the, by ASIO the... Yes, I would. I would actually expect it... Uh, in they're doing the same thing. Doing their job, that they would actually be monitoring those types of threats. I would. That's an appropriate use of surveillance, is to monitor people who are actually likely or planning to commit crimes. That's targeted. That is yeah, not that's targeted. Well, which is a legitimate... Uh, of course. Uh, activity for a, a counter-terrorism sure, intelligence absolutely. source. I think everybody understands that. No one's saying that we don't need counter-intelligence or counter-terrorism intelligence. No, there are bad guys in the world. There's true there are threats, uh, both locally, uh, both regionally, and both globally. Um, uh, the Part of the irony here, of course, is that if I speak for the United States perspective, there's been any number of incidents that have occurred in which the system has quote-unquote failed. I mean, the Boston Marathon bombings, even though there were warnings and all the surveillance in place, it certainly didn't stop that, did it? So uh, that's just one example of any number of them. Oh, the, irony, the other irony is that, um, I mean, it just stands in stark relief to, the, to this continued defense of mass surveillance that somehow we need that to protect, protect our country. It's sort of this zero-sum game. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. But um, when the Edward Snowden disclosures were first coming out, the claim was made that 54 terrorist incidents, plots, or events had been stopped or blunted or prevented by virtue of mass surveillance. After all was said and done, for, so for, they listed all of them. And they, on the listed, they listed them all out. They actually, there, was, there is a list. There was actually a list that was that was provided to the. We've saved the American people. Well, saved. These are plots that we stopped. These are right. plots we blunted. These are plots that we prevented from actually occurring. Mm. Which, by by direct inference, is that this saved lives. Mm. It turns out that maybe one, if one, was that may have may have been prevented by the mass surveillance programs. Even that was probably done through traditional law enforcement means. And tip-offs from the public or, or observant members of the public. More likely, Usually that's, that's underwear bomber, shoe uh, bomber. Shoe, all of yes. the airline debacles have been that have been caught by very alert passengers, as opposed to all of the airport security theater uh, surveillance that you go through in the United States. At least, I haven't experienced the level of security theater here in Australia, and I commend you for that. 
Um, but certainly the indignities that you go through in the U.S. Um, have very little to do with actually catching people. Now, let's talk about encryption because uh, I've been reading uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald's book. He was the guy with, uh, with Edward Snowden who uh, wrote the original articles on mm -hmm. Verizon, which is a telecoms and PRISM about the internet, uh, and a whole series of articles. It's, it's, a, it's a very good book and it goes to uh, all the, uh, the overheads on, uh, uh, on their, on their uh, tactics and exactly what the powers of, of uh, the NSA was. Uh, the, this issue of encryption, uh, won't that save us? Uh, if we want to have privacy, and we'll get to the philosophical roots of privacy in a second, but if we want to have privacy, we can get in encryption programs, can't we? I think that is one way that people are fighting back is by using encryption because, of course, mass domestic surveillance and international surveillance has no carve-out or no protection, no exception for attorneys communicating with clients or for doctors communicating with patients or for accountants communicating with, with their clients. Or journalists with Or informants. journalists with their sources, mm. exactly. So encryption, I think, is a way that a lot of people are now taking precautions against this. I know Edward Snowden has said publicly that to the extent that the law lags behind um, and reform efforts are taking a while, if they don't effectively take care of this, technology will. And we see that right now going on with encryption and the fact that a lot of newsrooms around the world are implementing secure drop as a way of sources contacting them safely. And a number of journalists I know and lawyers I know and I myself use encryption. I would consider it irresponsible not to. I cannot do my job without it's, it's awful that we've got to go to encryption, isn't it? I agree. I feel like I'm using drug dealer tactics. I meet in person, I pay in cash, I <laughs> use burner phones, I feel like I'm on the wire or something. Um, it, it's kind of a, a throwback to the underground parking garage days and the days of deep throat. Um, and it is absurd that we have to go to such measures, but until there are some limits on what the government can do, I think it's better to be safe than sorry, and I represent a lot of people in the sorry category who've been caught and are being overly prosecuted by the government. Um, in, does I, encryption work? No, the encryption does work. Uh, the, the, if, there are some exceptions to that. I mean, exceptions in terms of sometimes encryptions are pretty weak, they're older systems, but um, the math, uh, having worked with Bill Binney, who was one of uh, NSA's premier cryptomathematicians, as long as it's implemented correctly, as long as, as long as it's installed correctly, as long as you take other prudent uh, defensive measures, then you do have a reasonable expectation that you can protect your communications. It's, it's worked in banking, hasn't it? I mean, if it didn't work in banking, in internet banking, <laughs> there wouldn't be internet banking. You know, banking. it's interesting you bring that up because that's an example of if, if this doesn't matter, if encryption doesn't matter, then hey, uh, why bother having any of this when you do any of your transactions with a bank, or why bother having encryption when you slide your credit card through mm. one of the readers? Mm. There's a reasonable expectation that that information is protected and that it's not accessible. And, and of course, we've had a number of instances where these types, of, this type of information has gotten broken into mm. uh, by others uh, for nefarious purposes. Mm. So this type of protection is reasonable in, in modern society. Isn't it reasonable that if I'm an individual and I'm communicating something sensitive to somebody else, I just don't want anybody reading it? Mm. The problem is, um, in a surveillance mindset, if you're using encryption, you must be hiding something by virtue of using it. Mm. 
And in fact, NSA's uh, philosophy is that if you are using encryption, that gives them grounds to keep whatever communication is coming from you essentially permanently, mm. for, uh, hoping for the day maybe when they can decrypt it. Listen, we, we in Australia, we're in a, a Westminster parliamentary democracy, um, and uh, the, the uh, secrecy uh, for national security has been around since uh, uh, post-war. Um, what is it, uh, and ju as journalists we've been concerned about too constrained, a pri too tougher privacy arrangement because sometimes uh, the malfeasing or the corrupt can hide behind uh, privacy. Uh, what's, what's the philosophical uh, roots of privacy? Why do we have to have privacy? <laughs> well, I think, I think um, bad guys... Apart from your pin for your bank account. Hiding behind privacy um, is, is pales, it's just infinitesimally small compared to... What's the human our, right behind privacy? Sure, your own self, so, your own sovereignty, your own self. I mean, if you don't believe in privacy, hey, why don't you come give me your keys to your house and your car and your passwords? Bring them on up right now. You trust me. I'm a very trustworthy person, right? And if your answer to that, how many yeses do I have? How many people out there are willing to do that? And if the answer is no, then why not? Because it's personal. It's privacy. It's part of your individual autonomy and your own individual sovereignty, which supposedly we value more than anything in a free and open democratic society. The people are supposed to govern the government, not the other way around. Tom, you've had to deal with this uh, and in the ordeal that you've been through and the courage uh, that you've had to find. Uh, what you know what I'm trying to say. What do you say about privacy that, uh, uh, that goes beyond uh, all the other uh, manipulations that are, uh, we understand and the context we understand in the terms of national security? No, it's particularly poignant for me, particularly personal given what I experienced because the government wanted to take everything I was as an autonomous, sovereign human being away from me as punishment for having stood up. And in, in the United States, what I did, I stood up for. I realize you do not have a constitution here. Uh, although you clearly have more than inferred rights of, of the citizens, uh, given the type of government you, you are, it's, you know, it's sort of the Western uh, tradition of democracy. I recognize the United States, we have this thing called the Constitution, and I stood up and took an oath to defend it. Uh, does it matter? Yeah, if you go back to the words in the Declaration of Independence, you know, where we s broke free from the British Empire, right? And, and, uh, and the Crown, and the King, and King George, uh, that there were certain inalienable rights uh, that, um, that we all have. And among those were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's fundamental uh, to who we are. And, if and privacy is implied. In privacy that. is implied. It was really enshrined uh, in the Bill of Rights in the Fourth Amendment. Right. Um, uh, we had uh, Justice uh, Brandeis, uh, one of my favorite uh, um, justices on the Supreme Court. Um, he actually said basically the right to be left alone. Mm. That's a very powerful argument he made. If you don't have the right to be left alone, if you're not secure in your own person, in your effects, in your papers, which is we describe in our Fourth Amendment, but that extends to me to all, to all the sovereignty of all human beings. If a citizen does not have rights, if a citizen cannot defend themselves and be protected against the government, then we fall back to a period in history where we're not citizens. We're basically subjects to or subjects of the state. I don't think we really want to go there, but somehow there's a carve-out in this post-9-11 national security world 
that you don't have an expectation of privacy. You don't. We will make that determination on your behalf. That's the, um, the psychodynamics from the post 9-11 in Australia. We had the Bali bombings, which was devastating to the psyche of Australia when uh, it was an act of terrorism in a uh, nearby country. There, there, there hasn't been a, uh, an act of terrorism on Australian uh, soil. Um, and, but I fear that if there was one, the same dynamic, the psychodynamics that uh, had affected the United States would also affect here. So uh, you guys, uh, in standing up for, for privacy in the context of uh, national security, needing to, to defend the, the physical well-being of the American people is, uh, is a very hard ask because you're, you're, you're almost uh, against the flow, aren't you? You feel, you feel that or do you feel that it's... It's, often it's changing. It, often it feels an, an upstream battle, though I do think the balance is starting to tip the other way in the United States as people realize the depths of what NSA has done. Um, it does feel like an uphill battle sometimes, but I think people realize, as Benjamin Franklin said, one of our founding fathers, that those who would forsake liberty for privacy deserve neither. And other founders have said, if I had to choose between a free press or a free government, I would pick a free press. So I, I think there's some really amazing forethought that, you know, if you go back and look at the founding documents upon which our nation is built, that would counsel in favor of privacy. Mm. Uh, finally, before we open to questions, I want to talk about journalism, uh, because jour this is privacy, national security and journalism the criminalising of, uh, uh, of journalism. Tom, uh, you went to a, uh, to a journalist. Um, the journalist wasn't charged. No, but there was a point during my pre-criminal, um, uh, pre-trial criminal proceedings where the uh, prosecutor actually threatened to bring the reporter into court. And of course, as I, I well know, that reporter had to uh, lawyer up to the max just in, in the event that that would happen. Mm. Um, this is this is criminalizing journalism. This is meaning that the the journalist is publishing information the government decides is uh, too sensitive, or it's embarrassing them, or it's revealing wrongdoing or illegality. You were indicating earlier when we spoke that uh, the prosecuting authorities uh, had uh, learnt something from your case, and that was uh, I think Rosen. Wasn't it uh, Rosen, the, the Fox guy? Right. And, and Ro there's another Rosen. Yeah, James Rosen and Ryzen. James Risen. Risen, um, that's right. That uh, they actually made the case. Yeah, they learned, they learned the lessons. In, I was really the first case. I was the first Espionage Act case, first whistleblower, charged espionage since uh, Daniel Ellsberg of the Pentagon Papers fame 40 years earlier. But it was clear, even though the government effectively lost the case against me, and, and that's why I'm here in Australia, I can actually maybe go around the world still as got a free a human being. <laughs> yes, still have a passport. Actually, they took it away, but I got it back, right? Um, and I was under severe travel restrictions. I could not leave the United States because I, my passport had been confiscated, and I couldn't leave the local area without special permission. And the government had right of first refusal. But all, I'm clear of all of that. But it's clear the government was not going to give up. And one of the, uh, one of the best uh, investigative reporter, uh, journalists that the United States uh, has is James, is James Risen of the New York Times. And in another whistleblower case, um, they decided that uh, he, in order for them to pursue their case, he was really the only eyewitness to a crime. 
So because he'd received. Because he'd received information from the whistleblower. And it was ultimately published in a book called The State of War. So they went one step even further, which was not only could they bring a reporter or threaten to bring a reporter into the courtroom, but in this case, they're actually subpoenaing, subpoenaing the uh, reporter and making a case that in order for them to make the case um, uh, in court, that they, the only eyewitness to the crime okay, committed by, this, by uh, the source, the only eyewitness to that crime is the journalist. And Who's so, guilty of committing journalism, right. basically. So practicing and, and, investigative <laughs> journalism and aggressive journalism, reporting on which was this huge boondoggle of an operation called Operation Merle involving the CIA and Iran, where they actually ended up providing real nuclear secrets to Iran, of all things. Severely as embarrassing. Sting, as a sting operation. Yeah, as a yeah. sting operation, but severely embarrassing uh, the CIA. Um, there were, they were hell-bent to go after, go after the reporter. So criminalizing the practice of journalism. In the James Rosen case, they actually said he was, he was, uh, he was engaged in conspiracy to commit a crime. Yeah. They actually had a warrant which allowed them to uh, go in and look at his phone numbers and you know, his phone calls and his emails. Similar Rosen's in trouble. He's in trouble now. Jim Risen, Risen sorry. faces quite a dilemma right now because shortly he will be forced either to testify against his source, go to jail, or pay a stiff penalty of about $5,000 per day. Um, and that is a horrible position. It's a constitutional crisis moment. I mean, this is similar to Marbury versus Madison and other foundational cases. Where's the First Amendment? That's a very good question. The First Amendment has the freedom of press and freedom of association and freedom of speech in the United States has taken a significant blow in post 9-11 America. And, um, Right now, the First Amendment, for example, in Tom's case, we were specifically prohibited from mentioning the word First Amendment, whistleblower, <laughs> newspapers, public interest. That's why Snowden can't get a fair trial right now if he comes back and faces an espionage charge. There is no public interest defense. Your motive is completely irrelevant, whether you were out to sell secrets to enemies for profit or to give documents back to your own fellow citizens so they could make an informed decision about what the government was doing behind their backs in secret. So the First Amendment has taken quite a blow um, and, and is at the heart of, of this debate that we're having. Well, and, and it, it's also very relevant in Australia because the federal government here, Senator Brandis, the Attorney General, is uh, uh, moving to the National Security Legislation Amendment, uh, which uh, uh, at uh, 35P, if a journalist receives classified information, if a journalist receives classified information, that'll be a criminal offence with five to 10 years imprisonment. So we've got a problem in Australia about the criminalising of journalism in this country. No, it's so extraordinarily what, what, draconian language, and if that language persists, you're, you're creating... To third parties as well, not just yep. journalists, to third oh, yeah. parties. Uh, and also uh, criminal, criminal penalties, if you're like an employee of ASIO, for example, and you bring forth information, you know, then you're also criminalized. It also basically absolves uh, the security services of any liability, civil or criminal, in the event that they are caught uh, doing, you know, doing something wrong. It doesn't, there, so there's this huge cutout. Increasingly, that secret side uh, of government 
um, is increasingly given license to do whatever it needs to in the name of national security. And, and uh, let me challenge you, but they can do this because the public wants to feel protected. And uh, if you've got nothing to hide, uh, there's nothing to worry about. And uh, if uh, there's support for national security, even aggressive national yeah. security then, uh, tactics. Then my blunt to keep us safe. My blunt well, I heard that after 9-11 from General Michael V. Hayden, the then director of NSA. We just need to make Americans feel safe again. Not be safe. Yeah, just feel safe. Not be safe, but feel yeah. safe. Yeah. Um, and uh, you did mention it, but I want to go through it again, and that is that um, uh, you're saying even with this, the, the vastness of the, the surveillance, uh, it uh, hasn't been proven, it hasn't been proved to, uh, to uh, thwart uh, terrorist plots. Well, that's been the conclusion. You don't have to take my word for it. The Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board appointed by the president, the president's own hand-picked internal review panel, a federal judge, and even the director of NSA have all admitted that all of this surveillance has failed to stop a single terrorist plot. Possibly it may have thwarted one, which could have been thwarted through human intelligence and other traditional law enforcement means. So we have all this surveillance and it's really getting us nothing. If you're looking for a needle in a haystack, why would you want to make the haystack bigger? I submit that you're making the haystack bigger out of other nefarious reasons like control and power. And that that has very little to do with actually keeping people safe. There are a lot of elephants in the room. Let's, let's be really honest here. Surveillance is a growth industry. There are any number of people and companies making very large amounts of money. It's, it's largest, I would argue, it's one of the largest transfers of wealth that we've ever seen in human history. And it really begs the question, is this really where we want to go in the world? Is this really where we want democracy to go? Because the, the, this whole thing about the ends justifies the means means that we're going to continue essentially grant license to the government to continue to expand these powers in secret. And there, it's off limits to question. And if you question it or reveal it or talk about it or share it, you're liable, given this incredibly draconian language, you're you know, liable to get you know, criminally sanctioned. You may end up for many, many years in prison. And if you don't, it's simply going to send a really, really chilling message. Be, you know, think twice before you say anything. Think twice before you talk about, about any of this. So, um, summing up, uh, uh, Jesslyn, um, Edward Snowden's uh, contribution, still a work in progress, I suppose. I think it's still occurring every day. Um, I mean, his, his desire was to start and spark a worldwide debate, which has occurred and is still occurring every single day in papers around the world. Um, I, again, I think this is a long-distance run and not a sprint. And these disclosures are continuing to come out. We're continuing to debate and talk about them as we are tonight, which is not against the law and should not be penalized criminally, but essentially would be by a lot of this new legislation. Because, for example, if um, a, a publisher, um, someone called a newspaper with a story about AGO illeg illegality, and that journalist discussed it with his editor or with a producer, that just that alone could subject the journalist to a criminal penalty of 10 years in prison for each revelation or exposure, much can't, less can't, publishing it. Can't resourceful journalists get around it and have it published in another jurisdiction? 
that's a creative way of getting around it. Certainly no one knows exactly where the intercept, where Glenn Greenwald is publishing out of, so it would pose a, a jurisdictional question to try to go after him, as well as a constitutional one to the extent that he's an American. Um, but yeah, I think, there, I think journalists are, would have to resort to creative ways to evade laws like this, but I think as a, an a priori issue, we should not have laws like this, mm. and we should not have yeah. journalists taking all sorts of ballet steps to try to encrypt and to have to do all of this stuff to be able to do their jobs, nor should I as an attorney have to be engaging in all these extra measures just to try to function and represent my clients. Tom, you've, uh, you've, you've praised journalism and uh, you said that uh, it was your saviour, I think. I, 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 saving grace. Saving grace. Right. Uh, but you've yeah. also seen some bad journalism too, haven't you? Yes, I've seen journalists who essentially uh, are stenographers for the government. They, they, pair at the, they, they pair at the party line, the power line, the elite line. Um, I think it's, some of them are actually complicit with the government in going after people um, who have revealed clear wrongdoing. Um, I mean, it's important to note that I'm here, I'm on stage with you, of, you're free in, in Australia sharing all this with you, uh, and yet I'm the only person that was indicted, um, you know, investigated and indicted for surveillance. I had nothing to do with surveillance, but what I did do was reveal it. Uh, John Kiriakou, uh, he was, worked at the CIA, he revealed the fact that we had a state-sponsored torture program, um, and yet uh, he's in prison right now uh, because they put extraordinary pressure on him, and he could have faced many, many decades in prison himself. Um, he's the only one, and yet, uh, in fact, uh, Jesslin has actually said in other fora that if he had actually committed torture, that he would not be in jail today. I mean, what, what is happening to, to... So those who stand up, and the government knows this, I think it's really important to know the government does not have to, in essence, stand, have a policeman on every corner. They don't. Because of the nature of modern technology, they get to do an awful lot of this behind the scenes. It's, it's essentially virtualized. And yet those of us who stand up, those of us who are speaking truth to power, and even though we get hammered, some of us are free, some of us are in prison. I mean, you have, you have people even in this country, there's an individual called, referred to as Lorax from Anonymous, who has done some extraordinary things in terms of cybersecurity and privacy and has revealed a lot of things in the public interest. But you know, he's essentially you know, off, you know, off limits. He can't even like, touch internet anymore. Um, you have other people in, in the United States who uh, under, the very, under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act who are charged with these crimes because you know, they're revealing information in the public interest. Um, the, these are really chilling examples. If you look at the truth tellers, the whistleblowers, the hacktivists, uh, we're really the canaries in, in, in the, the coal mine of democracy. Do you really want to go down this path? And this is the great fear that I have, that somehow, and this is what Edward Snowden was confronted with, he had a much fuller set of documentation than even I was exposed, although I gave thousands of pages to official government investigator. I just didn't bring him out to give to a, to a reporter. He saw what happened to me. He said, you know, we really need to put this into the public debate. Do we really want to live in this kind of society? I mean, I read, I used to read, I read George Orwell growing up. I don't want to be Winston cowering in a corner because that was the only place the surveillance cameras couldn't see me, which meant they knew where he was. Mm. I don't want to live like that. I lived for many, many years under the boot of the surveillance state. I had FBI, you know, agents sitting in parked cars at the end of my street knowing when I was leaving and knowing when I returned and he followed me around, he even told me that during my cooperative period with them. I don't want to live that kind of society. Mm. 
Um, and yet, somehow, it's a zero-sum game that somehow, because of a few terrorists out there, I mean, I really find the arguments to be um, really pathological, that we're willing to sacrifice so much. Well, it's based on fear, Tom. Yeah, well, the fear mm. is a controlling thing, mm. right? Mm. Far, I mean, how many, compare the number of people actually killed by quote-unquote terrorists, how about the number of people that die on Australian roads every year? Are we now going to declare a war on roads? By virtue of, and, and or worse, the terrorists actually use the roads, right, to travel around. And we don't know it yet. So let's, let's block everybody from using the roads. I don't think we're, we're going to do that. Why then does national security get such a huge cutout that somehow they're exempt from due process or exempt from oversight? They're exempt from public interest. And if you dare question them or if you dare reveal anything about them, guess what? We're going to fry you. We're going to hang you. And worse, we may criminalize you. Um, now some questions. Uh, we've got some mics here. And if you could state your name and <clears throat> for the surveillance. Name and organization. <laughs> yes. I'm yeah. sorry, it's an awful joke. Yeah. <laughs> Go. Hi, my name's Tracy. Is there any way that you could have remained anonymous at any stage or was the information that you were giving um, targeted to you, to Thomas Strait. I was known, I had already blown the whistle over a number of years through any number of channels. NSA, Department of Defense, the oversight committees, the intelligence committees. Um, internally. In Congress, it's internally, yeah. right? And a, and a number of others, all within the government. When I went to the reporter, um, I went to the reporter anonymously, and I went to the reporter in an encrypted fashion. The reporter didn't even know who I was for an entire year. However, the government was already on to me because they already launched this massive criminal leak investigation because of the James Risen, uh, Eric Licklau story revealing, revealing for the first time in public the existence of this um, warrantless wiretapping program in December 2005. I was on a very, very short list of people at NSA who knew about the domestic mass surveillance programs. So in some ways, my going to the reporter uh, was really um, kind of a red herring trigger, right, to, to get me. Remaining anonymous is extremely difficult. I was, I mean, I, I had a reasonable expectation I could remain anonymous in part. But I knew what the powers of NSA were, and it wouldn't take, you know, over time, they'd be able to figure out, based on metadata, okay, uh, who I was, and, and could probably pretty much pinpoint me, and then they could isolate that from others. You know, what You're are the a chance? suspect at the start. Yeah, well, I was a person of interest early on, yeah. okay? And that turned, I turned into then a target. Yes. Uh, my name's Maggie Palmer. I'm from SBS Dateline. My question is about encryption. Are there any programs like 3MA or others that you would suggest are actually safe for journalists to use that are encrypted properly? Yeah, it's, I have to answer. I mean, when you say safe, I, 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 always, I always have to be careful in saying, is it safe? Because part of the problem here is infrastructure. There's so many different ways that the infrastructure can be compromised. Are there, is there a reasonable expectation if you're doing email with PGP, as long as, as, long as the implementation is correct? Yes. Are there reasonable expectations of privacy if you use Tor, you anonymize your, uh, your communication channels with some constraints? Yes. Uh, 
are, is OTR, you know, off the record, which is essentially secure, anonymized, you know, instant messaging. Yes, as long as the implementation is secure. That's, but that's, that's the rub here. And so you, it, you have to look at this end to end. You can't just look at this as just one piece of it, that somehow if I bring up an application on my desktop, all right, well, you know, I, there's communication I do where I have to use a combination of uh, proxies and, and virtual private networks. But if you're using a virtual private network, you better make sure it's non-logging, okay? Because, you know, there are other metadata that can reveal who you are. Um, up here, guys. Yeah. Uh, uh, firstly, Tom, I just want to clarify, we actually do have a constitution in Australia, we just don't have a Bill of Rights attached to that constitution. So, um, uh, I, two, two brief questions, one about kind of uh, hardware, one about um, uh, ethics. Uh, Tom probably addressed this one. There's been a long-standing, possibly, internet myth that there was actually uh, a backdoor implanted uh, through things like Intel chips. So there was like a hardware backdoor, not just a software backdoor. So that's my first question and answer. But the, the more general question I have in regards to ethics, we've seen um, what would seem to be um, an incredibly um, hypothetical, or should I say schizophrenic attitude in, in terms of contradictory attitude, where you have Republicans who should be more on the libertarian side by nature, get the government out of me, don't surveil me, often being the people who ride this idea hardest that we've got to keep ourselves safe by surveilling people, which would seem to be an incredibly contradictory attitude. And I think there have been tensions, obviously, with the Tea Party rising, who seem to have a more libertarian streak. Uh, and, and, and one example, you also mentioned about journalists who seem to be puppets of the government also. Uh, one example would be, I think, when uh, the uh, Valerie Plame, Joseph Wilson incident, where uh, basically she was, she was added as a CIA uh, uh, operative, and uh, which you think would obviously put that whole network at risk, and the only motivation would seem to be, and Robert Novak of the Chicago Sun-Times uh, seemed to be the main mouthpiece for this, and who didn't seem to get prosecuted for it. Uh, in other words, you have situations where this seems to be, if not sanctioned, at least they allow these people to, to get away with what would seem to be uh, hugely damaging and possibly lethal uh, exposure of information about CIA operatives, whereas Edward Snowden, obviously, and, and, and uh, Bradley Manning and, and, and Edward, uh, Julian Assange uh, get hounded to hell. So I'm just wondering, well, do one these contradictions... Of, one was part of adversarial uh, politics... Uh, and uh, the other one was a threat to the state, wasn't it? Well, that's the question I want to ask <laughs> about uh, these contradictions that would seem to be there. Are these gaining greater play at the moment, particularly, as I say, with the Tea Party influence seeming to create a wedge in the uh, Republican Party? Are these issues now uh, uh, getting greater traction and possibly putting pressure on those more conservative hawks? They are. I mean, there, there has certainly been an increasing trend uh, in the United States to, to push back a lot more publicity about what rights are we uh, giving up and how far is the government going here, especially with the revelations. Um, the thing with Valerie Plain, by the way, I used to work at the CIA, and the worst, the, the most egregious thing you do is expose someone who's operating under the most sensitive cover called non-official cover. We will never know to this day, and she's obviously not going to talk about it, Right? But her entire network was blown. Anybody she ever had in contact with, anybody she ever worked with, was entirely blown for political reasons. Now, what she, people don't realize, she was actually investigating weapons of mass destruction in, in Southwest Asia. Right? We will never know the full extent to what she was involved with, what else could have been stopped or prevented. We don't know. 
right? But it also raises an interesting ethical issue that you point out on the difference between, that's why I cringe at the word leaking, because there's a difference between whistleblowing and leaking. Leaking serves no public interest purpose whatsoever. It's done for political gain. And in the case of Valerie Plame, was done to smear a whistleblower, namely her husband, who had written an article about how there was no yellow cake uranium in Niger. Mm. Um, whereas whistleblowing is to expose fraud, waste, abuse, illegality, or dangers to public health and safety. Mm. Um, in terms of the strange, we have a lot of strange bedfellows right now in Congress because we do see libertarian-leaning Republicans like Rand Paul coming together with people like conservative Republicans like James Sensenbrenner, who wrote the Patriot Act and said he never meant for it to do what the U.S. is doing under it right now, coming together with liberals like Senator Leahy in bipartisan reform efforts. So um, the House, of course, butchered what the Senate did, but now the legislation, a new version has been dropped in the Senate. And we'll see where that goes, the Senate, where all good legislation goes to die, unfortunately. Um, but there are definitely strange bedfellows of right-left partnerships lining up here between people who don't like big government and people who don't like civil liberties being infringed, basically. Yes. Sorry. We're, yeah, go. Uh, hello. Jonathan Ogilvie. Uh, just to go back to total uh, to encryption and um, uh, Snowden talking about total encryption as being an answer to it. In terms of the NSA, is it, I mean some people have said that that's not going to work, um, is it a sense, a bottom line sense of money if, if it makes it harder for the NSA, they actually have to spend more money to encrypt it and therefore I, I suppose the bigger question is, is there a limit to what the NSA is going to be funded? At some point are they going to say well, we can't give any more money to the NSA? Well, the first part of it is it's the opportunity cost. It is true that if you're encrypting um, your communication, the opportunity properly, then the, the opportunity cost to actually come after you is a lot higher. Uh, and some have made that argument, right? That and as larger companies do more wide-scale encryption and protection of their subscribers' information, which is already happening, largely triggered by the Snowden disclosures, it's going to be even harder for NSA uh, to um, know what's going on, right? So they're going to have to go back to more traditional means uh, in terms of targeting individuals, not just doing mass surveillance. Yeah. And is there a limit to the money coming to the NSA? Well, <laughs> there was that's an the amendment. answering your second question. I said it's a growth industry. I mean, the fear-mongering and the continuing to, you know, the what if, you know, the sky is falling, right? Um, or it might fall, this, this sort of this, the 1% solution, so you, any money is worth it if you quote-unquote save one life, right? There's sort of this, there is this argument. Um, NSA, ba based on what's been publicly available um, in the last year, is operating a budget on you know, the order of $11 billion, a billion dollars that we know of, okay? There's a lot of other monies that, are, that also are involved that you don't hear about. Um, that's essentially triple, that's essentially triple what its budget was uh, on 9-10 of 2001. Mm. Um, because this was part of the answer, we just need more money. Mm. In fact, my immediate supervisor that I reported to, the number three person, I say, actually said, 
uh, 9-11 was a gift to NSA, we'll get all the money we want and then some. Mm. Yeah, so you just think about that somehow large programs, big bucks, and the other huge elf in the room is defense contractors. This is gonna solve our problem. And much of all this has been outsourced and privatized. They're not gonna do this on the cheap. They're gonna do this for money. And because it's national security, you get a special premium that goes on top of that. Perversely, it was um, actually a number of NSA clients said the motto ended up being keep the problem going to keep the money flowing. I love slogans. Yes. Oh, so, sorry, uh, just a gentleman behind you. Just. Hi. Uh. Hello? Hello? We'll get yep. to you next, Peter. Um, it seems like there are, uh, Dave, by the way, it seems like there are, that this infrastructure is being built. Uh, you've got you know, the NSA data center, um, as, as well as XKeyScore and a range of other uh, you know, pieces of software and data mining um, equipment and whatnot. Um, given that, the, I think there was, a, there was some legislation recently, uh, sorry, a determination recently uh, that Microsoft having, um, you know, storing data overseas didn't exempt that data from being um, obtained by, uh, by US prosecutors. Um, in this sort of context where we're, you know, as, as part of Five Eyes, we essentially have um, this, this ally that can, can basically surveil citizens that, you know, that aren't American. Um, not to be, like, do, do you see a possibility or do you see that, uh, think that we might be moving towards a, a situation where the US can essentially do the surveillance for, uh, for their allies? Um, in a sense, and bypass leg legislation if, one, they're not beholden to, you know, uh, to geography. If America isn't beholden to geography in terms of prosecution and obtaining information, can they essentially bypass the, you know, the, uh, the protections afforded to citizens of other countries? Do you see that as a possibility? And Not just as a possibility, it's already happening. I mean, the thing that's happening increasingly, look, there was essentially a silent coup, okay? The Constitution, we basically, the government jettisoned the Constitution after 9-11, okay? It really did. That's what I was faced with. So increasingly, the government wanted to militarize this space. When you militarize a space, it gives you wide purview in, in, in going to, to seek out the threats because, in essence, everything is the battlefield, whether it's a physical location, whether it's a, a cyber location, whether it's an Internet node, it doesn't matter. It's, the, it's, a, it's a battlefield that's everywhere. So when you have the battlefield that both virtually and, and in and reality is essentially now merged, then, and you give then these ex extraordinarily expanding powers to the government in secret, well, then yes, uh, the, the normal laws you would think would constrain that um, sort, of, sort of evaporate uh, in this space. And it does raise some really serious questions that the, the integrity or even the sovereignty of a nation state uh, is, is clearly susceptible or vulnerable to these types of powers. Just ask the president of Indonesia. So mm -hmm. I guess just quickly, um, just to finish, are, are you saying, I mean, would you say that this, this is sort of heading towards, you know, a 1984 type situation, not to be a tinfoil hat wearer or to, you know, sound like a crazy, do you think that's, that's what's going to, what is happening currently? Well, it's, I mean, think about Osama bin Laden, right? I mean, I sat on the terrorism desk in 1993 when they tried to drop the World Trade Center towers the first time. And we warned people then, we warned national command authorities, they're not giving up, they're coming back. No one thought that they were a threat. 
Except, guess what? You know, for not even half a million dollars, they dropped two World Traders, two two World Trade Center towers, and severely damaged the Pentagon. What have we done in response? What's the worldwide response that NSA led? Are we really going to turn our democracy inside out simply because you know terrorists th threaten threaten us? I mean, we really—it's just the 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 response here to me really begs some fundamental questions. Why do we need to have to sacrifice uh, the fundamentals of democracy uh, for the sake of security? If you want perfect security, you have to give up all liberty and freedom. Is that really the world we want to live in? If you keep granting governments that kind of power, if you criminalize journalism, you criminalize people who are exposing wrongdoing the part of the government, like I did, right? Remember, all I did was hold up a mirror and said, hey, wait a minute. Because I, I confronted the, the lawyers. I said, you know what? There is a constitutional means in this country. If the laws of, that are currently on the books are not working, go to Congress. And look, this is 9-11. Congress would have signed just about anything into law, right? Well, they said if we do that, they'll say no. And that's when the hair went way up in the back of my neck. Because I realized that what they were asking for was simply to just completely set aside rule of law. That national security now had the imprimatur, and it was ends justifies a means. Whatever we need to do to make Americans feel safe again, we can do. And who's going to stop us? It's the Catch-22, the Joseph Heller novel. We have the power. Who's going to stop us? So let me give you a really stark example. Real quick, summer of 2002, Diane Rourke, who I had had, had back-channel communication with under the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act for some time regarding all of this. Conf she retired in April of 2002. She had the NSA oversight account. She was a professional staffer on the House Intelligence Committee. Confronts General Hayden in his office. Why, why are you violating the Constitution on such a, an extraordinary scale? And his response was four chilling words. We had the power. That cannot endure in a democracy. Mm -hmm. That mindset, that worldview, something has to give. And what ends up giving is a democracy. Mm -hmm. Yes, Peter. Hi. Uh, Peter Bowden. I uh, write and teach on ethics. Um, it's back to privacy, and I've been going back in my head over some of the discussions uh, that halfway through. If we're doing nothing wrong, why can't the government check on us? Why do we have privacy? I would... And, uh, hang on, let me ask the whole question first. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, it seems to me that the government already knows a hell of a lot about me. In fact, I'm on everybody, and everybody in this room, the government knows a hell of a lot about. They know everything uh, about us, yeah. Well, just about everything. So why, why, why? I think what Snowden did is he brought to us the basic elements of democracy. We did not know that the government was doing this, right? We have a social contract, you know, it goes back philosophers for 200, 300 yeah. years, Rousseau, Hobbes, yep. the rest of them, in the social contract. And that contract is the basis of our basic democracy, right? It's how we're run right now. And what happened then was that the government broke it, or the US government uh, broke it, and Snowden told us. And that is the basic reason why he did good, in my opinion. Do you agree? I or agree. do you agree? Huh? I agree. No, they fundamentally betrayed the public, the public, and they did so in secret. 
But then again, you had Cheney saying, we need to go to the dark side, but don't ask any questions about it. They told me that, don't ask any questions about this program. So the fundamental contract was broken. So yeah. you, you're, but, but I keep hearing this meme. I keep hearing this meme, which, which is from, from people saying, hey, I don't care because I have nothing to hide. I don't care if they know everything about me. Here's the problem with that. You're giving up your fundamental sovereignty as a human being. There is no privacy in that world. You're letting the government determine that. History is not kind. The very statement, you have nothing to fear, if you have nothing to hide, was actually made by Joseph Goebbels during the Nazi era. <laughs> we forget our own history. Yes, yes. And that was a surveillance state in the 20th century. But there are some people, including our premier business ethics book in this country, that, that categorizes whistleblowing as Joseph Goebbels. Yeah. as the worst in, in Nazi history. And it's, it's taught in our ethics classes. Not by me, but by, by many, <laughs> and in our books. And the same, the Stalin era is quoted to... Uh, Look, to I'm, the I'm the first to acknowledge that when you come up against power, especially secret power, you do so at your own peril. That's why I now encourage anybody that's considering doing this, especially in this era, they have got to protect themselves. They've got to have really good lawyers. Look, Jesslyn Radak was my voice when I had none. I couldn't talk in public during the time that I, I was under a criminal indictment. I'd been charged espionage. I had no public interest defense. She provided the public interest defense in the court of public opinion. In the end, even the mainstream media came around because even the Washington Post realized, in my own case, oh, you know what, government? Maybe Mr. Drake was a whistleblower. He wasn't a leaker. You know, by the way, you know, if you're up to no good, we have an interest. And oh, by the way, you know, we are the press, in case you forgot. Mm. We are the fourth estate. See, see, if the fourth estate's not doing its job, then it's the whistleblowers and the truth-tellers and the hacktivists from the fifth estate that are going to stand up at enormous sacrifice, mm. if necessary. Mm. For what? The people. If the people don't care, then they deserve the government they get or keep. Mm. Last one. Quick one. Uh, you've led into my question excellently. Um, <laughs> Mr. Segway. Drake, uh, I've seen a number of your, your interviews and um, I just wanted to acknowledge the... Um, I'm here, down the front row. Oh, sorry. <laughs> just wanted to acknowledge the, um, you know, the, the challenges that you've had. And I guess my question is, given the thousands of employees that are caught up in these organisations, how come there are so few whistleblowers? You represent a tiny percentage of all of the people within these machines. How come there are so few? I'll tell you why. They, they're actually quite honest with me. I had any number of former colleagues... Um, in, in private told me, uh, I'm quite sympathetic. I really, I really admire you for standing up, right? The government's done wrong, but I'm not gonna do it. And it wasn't just because of what happened to me. They said, you need to understand uh, something, Tom. And you could tell, the, this is someone who used to report to me. He says, I've got a job, I've got a family, I've got kids in college. I have to go back to NSA, I'm a contractor now, but I need to go back to NSA so I can secure my retirement. So on Abraham's Maslow hierarchy of needs, as long as my, my basic food, shelter, and all and clothing is being taken care of, I'm not going to worry about self-actualizing as a sovereign human being. Mm. I'm willing to let that go. Mm. <laughs> I couldn't face the prospect. I really couldn't because I had taken the, that oath to defend and support that constitution for the fourth time, an idea in how to govern ourselves and that the Constitution was designed to protect the people from its own government. And I said, I, I cannot stand still. I knew I'd be, I'd be complicit in a crime. 
I could not watch the subversion of my own government take place in the deepest of secrecy. And so I stood up. And I realized standing up meant that I'd be called out. I realized standing up. Ellsberg himself, Ellsberg, I, mm -hmm. Jesslyn, the first person she introduced me to after I was publicly, so publicly indicted back in April of 2010 was Daniel Ellsberg because at that time, this was before all the other whistleblowers and truth tellers you know, got, got exposed and got indicted and charged and most of them with espionage, was, it was a universe of one that knew precisely what I was going through. And even he said, he thought more people come forward. Other than some very close associate, no one else did. He went through channels that existed then, all remained silent including very senior senators. Only Mike Gravel in the end, senator from the state of Alaska, went into the well of the Senate on the speech and debate clause, which is in the Constitution, and he started reading the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record. Most people don't because they're afraid, they fear. And, and yet on the other hand, if you don't have, you know, if the press is not doing their job, and where else, and where does the press get their information from? If the press, the press has to have sources. Isn't the secret part of government in the democracy the one you want to have the most oversight on? The one you need the most insight on, the public interest, to make sure they're not getting out of hand? Look, even in U.S. history, we've paid a really, really pretty high price. I grew up, part of what, why I did what I did is I grew up in the 70s as a very young teenager. I saw a president resign his office because of the severely abusing instruments of national power against the American citizens without their consent and in violation of law. I saw all that unfold. I didn't imagine, and even with all the constraints are put into place, to watch my government in secret just toss it all overboard because they failed to keep people out of harm's way, which is a fundamental responsibility under the Constitution to keep people right, out of harm's way literally in the preamble of the Constitution to provide for the common defense. So because you failed, you get to just you destroy the Constitution to save it? I don't think so. Someone had to stand up, and I wasn't, was there, well, who else was going to stand up? I was eyewitness to these crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors, committed by the White House in partnership with NSA and others, and David Addington in Department of Justice and covering memos that all legalized all this when they were ultimately were exposed. Well, they were just following orders. Look, if I had just gone along with all this, I would have been just following orders too. That defense was absolutely rejected during the Nuremberg trials. The Nuremberg principles made it crystal clear that simply following orders because you committed mm. war crimes or crimes against humanity was an insufficient defense. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank Tom Drake and Jeffrey Maddox.